Hebrews chapter 8. The title of this message this morning is, If It's New, It's Better, at least in this case. Now, we know that's not always true, that if something is new, that it's automatically better. But we are enamored with new and shiny things, aren't we? I mean, I'm just like any guy. You show me something new and shiny, and I need two of them right quick. We are enamored with new things, but new doesn't always mean improved. Solomon made that very clear in the book of Ecclesiastes. But when it comes to this topic today, the new is better, because today we're talking about the new covenant, the covenant by which we are saved, the covenant that is inaugurated and put into effect with the blood of Jesus Christ, this covenant by which we are saved, brothers and sisters, it's better than the old. And when we learn a little bit about the old and much more about the new today, we'll be so stoked that we are in this covenant of grace. Let's pray and get into it. Jesus, thank you that you're a savior. Thank you that you're a willing Savior who came to save. Thank you that you came to earth to seek and to save the lost. Jesus, we thank you for saving us. Thank you for being a great and merciful God. Thank you that by grace you offer salvation to humanity. And Lord, we ask that there wouldn't be anybody in this house today that would miss the wonderful gift of salvation that would miss the beautiful truth of this new covenant, this awesome new and better thing that you have made. And Lord, for those of us that are already in the covenant, teach us to walk by it. Teach us to live by grace, to rejoice in grace, to receive grace, to just walk in grace, Lord. Thank you that we've been freed from the law and from old things and all things have been made brand new. Lord, make our hearts alive to these truths this morning. Restore unto us the joy of thy salvation. This thing that you've done of saving six sinners is the greatest thing the world has ever seen. And so, Lord, set our hearts on fire. Breathe life into us and transform us now by the Holy Spirit working through the Holy Word. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, by the grace of God, we're going to finish all of chapter 8 today. Not that we have to, but it just all fits together. I know you're afraid because you know our usual pace, but we'll get through it. We're going to blow through the first six verses because it's familiar ground. It's themes that we've already covered, talked about extensively in previous weeks. And then once we get to around verse 8, we'll slow down a little bit and unpack it. Verse 1 says this, Now, the main point in what has been said is this that we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens. So he's just recapping, helping us to realize once again what his main point is. We can't go over all that ground. We spent weeks studying it. But when he says we have such a high priest, he's referring to the description of Jesus in chapter 7, verses 25 and 26, excuse me, 26 and 27, where it says, for it was fitting that we should have such a high priest one who is holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those other high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Remember that the main point of the author is that Jesus is better. 
Okay, for his Hebrew audience, it's that Jesus is better than Judaism, that Jesus is better than the law, that he's better than the old covenant, that he's better than the Levitical priesthood. He's better than the tabernacle and the temple and the sacrifices. For us who are Gentiles and aren't familiar with those things, suffice it to say, Jesus is better than everything. You name it, whip it out, pull it out, show us what you got. Jesus is better than everything else. Okay, that's the main point there. He says that Jesus has taken his seat there in verse 1, meaning that his work of sacrifice is finished. In the tabernacle and in the temple, there were no seats. The priests were to work continually making sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. That work of making sacrifices to cover the sins of the people was never done. But Jesus Christ, after his sacrifice on the cross and his ascension after the resurrection, is seated, meaning the work of accomplishing our salvation is finished. Did he not say on the cross, Tetelestai, paid in full, it is finished. And so he is now seated, denoting that that work of sacrifice as a priest is done. And notice it says he's seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty on high. Meaning very simply for you and I today, that Jesus is in control. Jesus is in control. It was so darn important for the original audience to know that because they were experiencing extreme persecution at the hand of the Roman government. So important for them to be reminded that Jesus is on the throne, even when the world doesn't make sense. And I would conjecture, I, I, would, I would adventure to say that we are heading into a period of history where the world is going to make less and less sense. And we're going to need to remember more and more that Jesus is on the throne, that he's in control. When everything else seems like it's out of control, Jesus is in control. He is the prince of peace. He's got it handled. So when things get weird, things get uncertain, things get trippy, cling to Jesus. He's exalted. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He invites us into his presence that we might experience his peace. Amen? Verse 2 says that Jesus is a minister in the sanctuary in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. Now, we'll unpack this idea a little further when we get to chapter 9, so I don't want to belabor it. But we need to know that the tabernacle, the, uh, the pattern that was given to Moses for the tabernacle was just that. It was a pattern. It was a pattern of something that's already existing in the heavenlies, the heavenly tabernacle or dwelling place. Again, we'll get to it in chapter 9. But he's simply saying here that Jesus' ministry is not merely an earthly one, but he's ministering in the heavenly tabernacle, very simply for the Jewish audience. Therefore, he's superior to the Levitical priesthood. Because the tabernacle and the temple and the sacrifices and the worship services on earth, when they were given in design by God to Moses, are only a shadow of the heavenly reality. Just a shadow of the heavenly reality. Very clear in verse 5. Look at verse 5. Speaking now of the earthly priests, the Levitical priests, it says, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. God said, see that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. So, That worship structure on earth and the tabernacle where those priests ministered is only a shadow of the reality of the ministry of Jesus Christ and the dwelling place of God. 
The point of the author for his Hebrew audience was don't get caught up in religion. Don't get caught up in those temporal things that you see on earth. They all serve to point to Jesus. For you and I applied to our lives, don't get too caught up in church and doing church and churchy stuff because it's all about Jesus. Keep an eye fixed on the glory of Jesus Christ. Don't let it become about church. Don't let it become about other people. Don't let it become about anything other than Jesus Christ because Jesus is reality. Amen? Amen. Look now in verses 3 and 4. It says, for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Hence, it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. We talked about this extensively, that Jesus, according to the law, was not from the right tribe to be a priest. According to the Levitical law, uh, the law given to Moses, actually, Mosaic law, to be a priest, he had to be from the tribe of Levi and the family of Aaron. But Jesus, who is a priest, Hebrews tells us, is from the tribe of Judah and the family of David. That's the kingly line. And so all of chapter 7 was about the fact that he's not a priest in the Levitical order, but he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, who? Melchizedek. You'll have to get the CD from chapter 7. He's a different kind of priest, but the point being, he's a priest and a king. Therefore, he's everything we need. He's the one who's able to make us right with God and govern our lives right for God. Understand that? He's the priest and he's the king. And then he says in verse 3 there that he has to have a sacrifice to offer. And that's unpacked in the latter part of chapter 9 and into verse 10. Of course, the sacrifice is himself. Now look what it says in verse 6. It says, speaking of Jesus, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. Notice, compared to the old things, the author is saying that Jesus has a more excellent ministry. He's a mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. He's wanting his audience to know that even though Christianity isn't panning out the way they thought it would, there's no reason to go back to the old things, the old covenant and the law and that former worship structure. Jesus has a more excellent ministry on our behalf and in our lives, mediates a better covenant by which we are saved, founded on better promises which are given to us by God. Application for us, sometimes Christianity isn't what you expected. Usually it's that reason because you haven't read your Bible and somebody sold you a little fluffy bill of goods about the gospel. Somebody soft-pedaled it to you somewhere and said, come to Jesus and all your problems will automatically disappear. That's not true. Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have drama. Actually, he said trouble, but I like the word drama. In this world, you're going to have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. You see, Jesus brings us through it all. And so in times of difficulty, we cling to him. He's got a more excellent ministry, mediator of a better covenant based on better promises. Now, this better covenant that's mentioned here, as I said previously, it's a covenant by which we are saved, sometimes called popularly the covenant of grace or the new covenant, as we'll often call it today. What is it better than? It's better than the old covenant 
are often called the Mosaic Covenant, sometimes called the Covenant of the Law. So we have this new covenant, this covenant of grace that's better than the old covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant of the law. Look what verse 7 says. If that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. So it begins to be revealed to us here that the first covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant of the law, for some reason didn't cut it. It didn't get us to where we needed to be with God. There was a need for a second covenant. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go look at the story of the inauguration of the Mosaic Covenant. And as we read through a few verses there, let's see if we could spot the fault spoken of here in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. Okay, let's try to find that fault. So let's move now to Exodus chapter 24. We'll be back to Hebrews, so stick a finger there. Exodus 24. A little bit of context. Mo's been spending some time with God up on the mountain, up on Mount Sinai, and he has received from the Lord the law. And now he's come down from the mountain and he's relating to the people all that God said. And we pick it up in Exodus chapter 24 in verse 3. Exodus 24, 3. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. And so Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the sons of Israel and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, right? The law that had been given to him by God that he wrote down and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. And said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Were you able to spot the problem? (laughs) The problem is not with the law. There's nothing wrong with the law. Romans 7 makes it clear. It's God's standard. The problem was not with the law. The problem was with the people. The problem was the we will declaration of the people that when God laid out his standard, 613 commandments, by the way, 247 of a positive nature, you shall do this, 365 of a negative nature, do not do this. When all 613 were laid out to them, the people said, we will do all of it, we will obey. And there we have the problem with the first covenant, the we will of the people. And that's the nature of the covenant, that God laid out his standard 
and then expects the people to pursue after it. And so the way that God deals with his people in the first covenant is according to law, merit, and demerit. He deals with them in the first covenant, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, according to performance. There was a standard, they were to attain to it. And he dealt with them according to merit. If they obeyed and did right, then they were blessed. Or demerit. If they didn't obey and they did wrong, they were cursed. Sometimes they even died. That was the truth in the nature of the old covenant. God set a standard. They said, we will. And God said, well, let's see. But the new covenant is not based upon the we will of the people. It is based rather upon the I will of God. This is very good news. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 8 as we see this. Hebrews chapter 8 in verses 8 through 12 is quoting from Jeremiah 31, a direct quote. Jeremiah 31 is where God revealed the new covenant to the nation of Israel. Notice now that this covenant is different in nature. There are no we wills involved in it. It's got nothing to do now with the we will of the people. It's got everything to do with the I will of God. Let's look at three different verses that highlight that. Verse 8 of Roman, uh, Hebrews 8 It says, for finding fault with them, God says, behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Notice God says, I will bring a new covenant. So the old one then is seen as temporary. There's a new one that's coming in. The old one had been in effect for 600 years. 600 900 years, excuse me, because the Mosaic Covenant was given around the year 1500 BC and Jeremiah ministered around 600 BC. So 900 years under the old covenant and then God comes and says, I will affect a new covenant. Notice who the covenant is with. We can't miss this. You cannot miss this. Who did he say he'd make the covenant with? Israel. He said he would make the covenant with Israel. Very important to understand that God never made a covenant with Gentiles. The Bible sees the world two ways, Jews and everybody else. A Jew is a Jew and a Gentile is a Gentile. God never made any covenants with Gentiles anywhere in Scripture. His covenants are with the nation of Israel. The world receives the blessings of those covenants when they enter into them by faith. Gentiles were invited into the Mosaic covenant. They could do that if they wanted to. They could get circumcised and practice the law. Hooray! And they are in the Mosaic covenant. The rest of the world is invited into the new covenant. But understand, it is a covenant that was made with the nation of Israel We who are Gentiles are invited into it. Therefore, the church never replaces Israel. The church does not replace Israel. The church is invited into the covenant made with Israel. In Jeremiah 31, God is explicit about that. Now, it is the I will covenant. Look in verse 10. We'll see some more I wills. For this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds 
and I will write them upon their hearts, and I will be their God. Verse 12, we see a couple more. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Seven times in three verses, God says, I will. This new covenant is based upon what God is willing to do. Now, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was inaugurated with blood. That was the only time in the Old Testament that we see the general population of Israel sprinkled with blood was when they entered into the Mosaic covenant. The new covenant is also inaugurated with blood, the blood of a sacrifice, but a different one altogether. I think you know who it is. In Luke chapter 22, it says this starting in verse 19. And when Jesus had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. After they had eaten, saying, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. And his entirely Jewish audience would have heard the words new covenant, would have immediately went to Jeremiah 31 in their little Hebraic minds and said, this is the I will covenant. We are now going to be free from, we will do thus and so, and we're going to get to experience God making good on the promises of what he said he would do in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we see that the Mosaic covenant is transitory in nature. It's temporary in nature. It was always meant to be so. But the new covenant is permanent. The old covenant was important. It served a purpose. It served a few purposes. Number one, it taught us about the standard and the holiness of God teaches humanity through Israel about the holiness and the standard of God, that there really is absolute truth. Amen? Amen. Not everything is on a sliding scale and not everything is relative. There is a standard and there's a standard giver. He's a God of the universe. Teaches us about God's standard, teaches us about God's holiness, and it teaches us how much we need Jesus. Those 613 laws teach us how much we need Jesus. It says so in Galatians 3, verses 24 and 25 say, Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So the law is a tutor that shows us, points to, demonstrates, illustrates, teaches us about our need for a Savior. And that if we're going to be justified, that is declared innocent and declared righteous, it's only going to happen by faith, by trusting in God and His I wills, and not by trusting in the we wills, because you know how we wills go with we folk. So the Mosaic Covenant, though transitory and temporary in nature, very important, taught humanity much. But the New Covenant is permanent. The Old Covenant didn't fail because of anything inherently flawed in it. It failed because of the inherent flaw in humanity. That's very clear in Romans chapter 8, verse 3. It says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh... God did, 
sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. The fault, the problem, the shortcoming in the old covenant was not what God said, but rather what the people failed to do was the sin nature, was original sin and practical sin, was the wicked heart of man. Again, that verse, Romans 8, 3, this time in a different translation that communicates well, the New Living Translation. It says, the law of Moses was unable to save us. There's the bottom line. We need to be saved. Not happening through the old covenant. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. I love that phrase. God declared an end to sin's control over us. Now, in the old covenant, there was a yoke of bondage that demanded performance. And God dealt with his people according to their performance. Bottom line, if they did right, they were blessed. When they did not, they were cursed. We see that throughout the Old Testament. But in the new covenant now, performance of humanity is entirely done away with. The merit system and demerit is utterly abolished. It is done away with. The new covenant emphasizes what God will do for his people, not what his people are trying to do for him. And the new covenant is based upon grace. It is called the covenant of grace. It's not based upon works in the law, but upon grace and what God has promised. We've got to understand grace a little bit. You know, as I was studying for this message, I was frustrated because I don't really know how to describe grace. For me, I... I, 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 I see? For me, it's, it's beyond description. It's really beyond what I think we could comprehend, the grace of God. But a basic understanding is reached when we compare grace to two other uh, ideas, that is justice and mercy. Okay, so let's look at justice, mercy, and grace. We all know what justice is. Justice is a highly esteemed value in our society. We know what justice is. Let's say you're driving up Linden Avenue and you go over the freeway there and you're continuing up Linden past Canalino School and it's during school hours and so you're in a 25 mile an hour zone and you're going 85 miles an hour and you get pulled over by the fuzz. Now you're busted. Going 85 in a school zone during school hours, dude, you're smoked. So your court date comes up and you go to court. And the judge says, what is this? You're going 85 on Linden Avenue during school hours? What are you, nuts? Did you really do this? Are you guilty? And you say, yes. I'm busted and I'm guilty. And the judge says, that's a $1,000 fine and that's a week in jail. That's justice. We love justice. Justice is important in our society. Hey, dude, you're going 85 in a school zone, sucker. You're in trouble. We demand justice and justice is met. And we say, yeah, justice. You're busted. A fine in jail time. Justice. 
Now, suppose you stood before that judge and that judge said, did you really do this, you moron? And you say, yeah, I was going 85 in a 25 mile an hour school zone during school hours. And he says, you know what? I'm gonna let you go this time. You go home. That's mercy. Oh, we like justice, but we love mercy. Especially when it's directed toward us. Oh, mercy. Give me mercy. Justice, you see, is getting what you deserve. We like when people get what they deserve. But mercy is not getting what you deserve. We like when people don't give us what we deserve. Justice, getting what you deserve. Mercy, not getting what you deserve. But grace is altogether different. You go before the judge and the judge says, you idiot. You're going 85 in a 25 mile an hour school zone during school hours. Are you guilty? And you say, I am absolute guilty. Absolutely, I did it. And the judge says, here's the deal. The court's going to award you $10,000. We're going to buy you and your family and all your best friends plane tickets to your island of choice in Hawaii. We're going to rent you a house on the beach for two weeks. We're going to give you a full quiver of surfboards. We're going to give you a brand new SUV. We're going to give you a jet ski and all expenses paid, all the meals, everything that you want every night. God bless you. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, with zero exaggeration, that is grace. It falls short of the grace of God, which is extended toward you and I. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve, but grace is getting what you don't deserve. You're an idiot. You went 85 in a 25 mile an hour zone and you got a free trip to Hawaii out of it. That's grace. That's what God has done for you and I through the person of Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace through faith according to the covenant of grace. And merit, performance, failure is utterly removed from the equation. This new covenant is based solely upon what God has promised and what Jesus has done. What God has promised and what Jesus has done is what this new covenant is based upon. Now, the old covenant couldn't even touch it. Let's talk about a few of the limitations of the old covenant. First of all, the old covenant could not remove sins. It did not remove sins. The Levitical sacrifices made a covering for sins, but all the Jews understood it didn't remove their sins. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see, there's a substitutionary death that takes place in a sacrifice. And when bulls and goats died, they died as a substitution for humanity, for specific persons, because the wages of sin is death. But animals cannot atone for the sins of people. They could only make a covering. They can't remove. It's impossible, it says in verse 4, for the blood of bulls and goats to remove sin. And the repeated nature of those sacrifices testifies of the impotency of the animal sacrifice on behalf of humanity. It doesn't 
cut it. It says in verse 3 that these sacrifices in the Old Testament brought a remembrance of sin, not remission of sin. You see, we get to come to Jesus and there's a remission, a removal of sins. But they would come with a sacrifice and there was a reminder of sins. And the sacrifice had to be perfect and unblemished and the right animal in the right way. There was a continual reminder day after day, year after year of how rotten and filthy and wicked we are. And the old covenant didn't deal with that. The New Testament makes it clear in Romans 3.20. It says, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Justified, declared innocent and righteous. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Nobody ever got saved through the law. Nobody got right. Nobody was declared innocent and righteous through the law. It rather increased knowledge of sin. The second limitation of the old covenant is that the old covenant cannot give life. And there's a key issue because the wages of sin is death, always has been. In the day that you eat of that fruit, you shall surely die, God said to Adam and Eve in the garden. That's the crux of the issue, is death. And the old covenant could not impart life. Galatians 3.21 makes it clear. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. In other words, if there was something that you could simply obey that would cause you to have eternal life and deal with the eternal debt of sin, then righteousness would have come through that act. But there was no such law given by God. Where does life come from? Jesus, speaking in John 5, 24, says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but is passed out of death and into life. So the old covenant could not remove sins. It could not give life. And thirdly, this is really important for you and I, the old covenant could not clear the conscience. That's a bummer. The old covenant could not clear the conscience. Anybody here ever deal with a guilty conscience? Oh, just a few of you? You guys are disgusting. (laughs) Such, yeah, guilty conscience. Okay, look, we all raise our hands because we all do, but we need to realize that the new covenant deals with a guilty conscience. And so we can be free, and we're supposed to be free from that sense of guilt. If you're anything like me, you sin, and you sin more than you want to. And you sin in ways you don't want to. If you're anything like me, you find yourself quite frequently doing things you hate to do. If you're anything like me, you are on a regular basis disgusted with yourself. Anybody like me? Okay. The rest of you are filthy scum. You don't feel guilty by yourself, I'll make you feel guilty. But you see, the old covenant couldn't deal with that guilty conscience that humanity has when we violate the righteous standard of God. Hebrews 9.9 says so. It says, accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. What a bummer to be under the Mosaic covenant. You would bring those sacrifices, they were a reminder of sin, and you went away and your conscience was still guilty. 
But in the new covenant now, the one that's inaugurated by the blood of Jesus Christ, it's altogether different and we need to lay hold of this. Hebrews 9.14 says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now there's a promise that we need to lay hold of because it's common to you and I that we frequently feel guilty, but that's not God's heart for you and I. Understand that. That is Satan's heart for you. He loves us to feel guilty and condemned and ashamed. But Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I know it's hard, but by faith we need to lay hold of the fact that God does not want you to feel guilty. Once you have come into the covenant through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, his substitutionary death and resurrection from the dead and ascension, once you come into that covenant and forgiven, he doesn't ever want you to feel guilty again because your sins have been forgiven. Removed as far as the east is from the west, buried in the deepest sea. He will chasten you from time to time. I mean, the Bible does say, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. That's Hebrews chapter 12. We'll open up a can on you when we get there to Hebrews 12. He will discipline you, but he doesn't want you to feel guilty. He doesn't want you to feel ashamed. He doesn't want you to feel condemned because Jesus dealt with it at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so when we fail, go to the cross. Remember the blood whom the son is set free is free indeed. And so Hebrews chapter 10 verse 22 says, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him for our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean. Deal with that by faith. You've been forgiven. Walk in freedom, not in condemnation. The final way that we see a limitation of the old covenant was that the old covenant could not provide access. Everything about the old covenant and that old worship structure and the tabernacle and the temple, everything about it denoted separation between a holy God and a wicked people. Everything about it. It was designed in the very details to denote separation and nobody ever got true, lasting access to God. But the new covenant is all about access. That's why when Jesus died on the cross, it says in the Gospels that the veil in the temple was torn in two. That veil that separated the outer holy place from the holy of holies, the place that represented the very presence and the Shekinah glory of God, it was torn in two, denoting that the way to God was made open as the flesh of Jesus Christ was open and wounded and broken for you and I. And so now we have access to God. And so again, it says, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him for our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood. And so the old covenant denoted separation, but the new covenant brings us into intimacy. Let us therefore draw near to God with confidence that we may find hope or help in the time of need at the throne of grace. So we have the failures or, or the shortcomings or the limitations of the old covenant and the benefits of the new. Let's start a new count, number one, because if I say number five, you guys get tired. Number one, more benefits of the new covenant. The new covenant gives us both the desire and the dynamic to obey. This is a big deal. 
It was void in the old covenant. The desire and the dynamic to obey were void. Look in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. Hebrews 8, verse 10. For this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them upon their hearts. This is something entirely different from the old covenant. The old covenant, the the standards thereof were written on tablets of stone. It was an external demand to which we needed to try to attain. It was external and demanding. The new covenant is internal and transforming. This is big. The old one was external and demanding. The new one is internal and transforming. He writes his law upon our minds and upon our hearts. And so this freaky thing happens that all of a sudden when you meet Jesus Christ, your desires change. Not all at once, some of them at once, but certainly over time, all of a sudden you're like, I don't want to do that anymore. I used to love to do that. I don't want to do that anymore. All of a sudden you discover, I'm not in bondage to that anymore. I used to be addicted to that and now I don't even need that anymore. And there is this inward transformation that takes place and you start doing weird things like loving people and serving God and giving time and giving money and worshiping God and raising hands. I mean, it's weird. It's weird. There's an inner transformation that takes place when you enter into the new covenants. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, the old things have passed away, all things have become brand new. There's a transformative work that takes place by the Holy Spirit from the inside out. Philippians 2, 13 says so. It says, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so then, in this new covenant, we're given the person of the Holy Spirit. He's poured out on the church in the new covenant. And now we have not only the desire suddenly to obey the Lord, because it's written on our hearts and minds, but we have the power, because we have the Holy Spirit. In the old covenant, they were powerless. God said, do this. Number one, they didn't want to do it. Number two, they had no power to do it. Bummer. In the new covenant, it's all done by Jesus Christ. We're transformed that we want to live for him and we have power to live for him. The old covenant could only declare God's holy standard. It never provided power to attain to it. In the new covenant, we have power. And in the new covenant, we are made righteous. This is really important, especially for you weird religious people. We are made righteous. There's something in us which is sick and twisted that wants to perform, isn't there? Some of you are at church simply because you're still in a performance-based religious uh, belief system. Some of you, that's why you're here. You're not here because you're on fire for Jesus. You're not here because you love the Lord, want to serve the Lord, want to worship the Lord. You're out of here because you're out here because you think God demands that of you. You think God is up in heaven and he's got some chubby little angels taking note, saying, oh, that's awesome. Mikey came to church. Gabriel, do you see that? Yeah, I see that. That's awesome. Go tell Jesus. He'll be so stoked that Mikey came to church. (laughs) That's what you think. Really, that's what you think. And you come to church, and you say, I'm doing my time, and God must be stoked. Dude, 
He's the maker of heaven and earth. You think he gets his jollies because you show up at church? (laughs) Not in any way, shape, or form. Understand, under the new covenant, we are totally freed from any need to perform. But some of you are still trapped in this performance thing. You're trying to be righteous. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to do some nice things for people. I'm going to give a little here. And I'm going to try to do these things. And I'm hoping that they'll make me acceptable to God. Dude, you're so bummed. Even your righteous deeds are as filthy rags, the prophet Isaiah said. Even the best things that you're doing are as filthy rags. It has nothing to do with what you can do. It has everything to do with what Jesus did on our behalf. And because of the cross of Jesus Christ now, we can quit trying to be righteous because he made us righteous. You don't have to try to be righteous because he made you righteous. He has made us righteous. When we are justified by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, we are made righteous by God. We've talked about this before. It's a difference between the indicative and the imperative mood of Greek verbs. Okay, the indicative mood is a simple statement. The door is shut. The imperative move commands or exhorts something. Shut the door. Religion says, do something, try to make it happen, act this way, shut the door. Religion is imperative. Jesus Christ dies in our place, lived the perfect life, his righteousness is imputed to us, we are declared righteous, and so now righteousness for you and I is indicative. The door is shut, it is done. We don't have to try to be righteous, God has made us righteous. In his sight, we are right because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So instead of trying to act like something, all we need to do now is cultivate intimacy with Jesus Christ and be who he made you to be and your life will give forth fruit. It is called the fruit of the spirit. Yeah, if you're going to praise God, praise him, don't it? It is called the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Notice it's called fruit. Fruit is a, bri- is a byproduct of certain things, Right? We have a lot of orchards here in Carpinteria. You give those trees some sunlight, some nutrients, and some water, and they're going to yield fruit, right? You stay connected with Jesus Christ in the new covenant, and you will yield fruit. You've never driven by an orchard and heard trees going, oh, I got to get this fruit out. You've never heard it, thank God. What do trees do? They get a little bit of sunlight, a little bit of nutrients, a little water, and they give fruit. We have been made righteous. Spend time with Jesus and your life will give forth fruit. That is who you are in Christ. Stop denying it and start living it. Now, the new covenant also gives us a firm relationship with God. The rest of verse 10, he says, I will be their God and they will be my people. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one could boast. Therefore, because it's not from ourselves, we're secure in our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a gift. It's by grace. 
Romans 5, 1 through 2 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Our standing before Jesus Christ is in grace. He doesn't deal with us according to merit or demerit. We must get ourselves free of this idea of today I've been a good Christian or I've been a bad Christian. That is totally foreign to the new covenant. But we do it all the time, don't we? We have these feelings all the time. Dude, I read my Bible the last three days. I'm a good Christian. Oh, I haven't read my Bible in like four days. I'm a bad Christian. No such thing as a good Christian or a bad Christian. There are only sinners who have been saved by grace and are accepted, adored, and adopted and loved by God. That's all there is. He simply does not deal with us according to merit. That is not how he deals with us. He deals with us according to grace and what Jesus Christ has done. So please be free of good Christian, bad Christian. Please be free of trying to do the right thing. Read your Bible because you're stoked on Jesus, not because you think you have to. Come to church because you love God and you love his people, not because you think Gabriel's up in heaven going, check him out, Jesus. Serve the Lord because he's worthy and he's great and he's awesome and he's on mission and there's nothing better in life than to join him in his mission. Serve the Lord for those reasons, not out of some sick religious obligation. And if you can't do any of those things, then just know God loves you, you cheese ball. (laughs) He loves you. He absolutely loves you. Nothing changes that. You are accepted and adored because of grace. The law says, he who does right will be blessed and live. But grace says, the work is done. Believe and live. Third point is that the new covenant provides greater knowledge of God. Verse 11. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizens and everyone his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest of them. So because the new covenant provides access, it provides greater knowledge of the Lord. This will ultimately be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom and the new heaven and the new earth. In the millennial kingdom, we read about it in Zechariah chapter 12, verse, or Zechariah 14, verse 9, where it says, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name, the only one. And Isaiah 11 speaks of the millennial kingdom in verse nine when it says, for the sea will be full or the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There's coming a day where the whole world will know what's what and who's who. And then there's a new heaven and the new earth where we read in Revelation 21, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, the home of God is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away all their tears and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain for the old world and its evils are gone forever. And then the final benefit that we'll highlight this morning of the new covenant is that the new covenant provides for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 12, for I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Brothers and sisters, it is so important that we lay hold of this by faith. That it is wrong to remember against ourselves and one another what the God of the universe has forgotten. 
I will remember their sins no more. It is so grievously wrong to hold against yourself and others what God has forgotten. And we've got to realize the privilege of forgotten sin. He says, I will remember them no more. You know, the people in the old covenant, they knew nothing like that because they knew that those animal sacrifices only covered their sins. God could never forget them because there they were all lumped up and just covered for a little bit. He could never forget them. But imagine being a Jew that day on the Jordan River as hundreds surrounded John the Baptist to be baptized for the repentance of sins. And somebody came walking through the crowd and John the Baptist, I'm sure trembling, said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And every understanding Jew stopped and said, wait a minute, John. You mean that covers the sins of Israel? No. This is the Lamb of God. And he takes away the sins of the world. And your Jewish mind was blown that no longer would there be a yearly and daily remembrance of sins, but a once and for all removal of sins. This is by the grace of God. Verse 13 says, when he said a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete, but whatever's becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. In other words, don't go back to that old thing of works. Don't get caught up in that. The new thing of grace is here. And any other belief system now that the world offers has to be measured against the new covenant because there's a lot of religious claims in the world. So when somebody's making a religious claim, you need to measure it against the new covenant. You ask them, okay, well, does your belief system provide for the removal of sins? Not talking karma, not working them off, not paying for them. Does your belief system provide for the removal of sins? Does your belief system guarantee eternal life? Does your belief system clear the conscience? Does your belief system provide real and actual and eternal access to the God of the universe? Does your belief system work interchange and give me power to live differently? Does your belief system secure my relationship with God and does it increase true knowledge of God? Only the new covenant does these things. Everything else in the world falls horribly short. It is only the grace of God that can take a prostitute, Rahab, and make her an ancestor of Jesus. It is only the grace of God that can take a double-minded man like Peter, who in the presence of Jesus was so intimidated by a servant girl that he said, may God kill me and damn me if I'm lying. I don't know Jesus of Nazareth. Only the grace of God could take a guy like that and make him a pillar in the church that preaches a first sermon and 3,000 get saved. Only the grace of God can take a cultural traitor like Matthew and make him an author of scripture. Only the grace of God can take a murderer like Saul 
and make them a lover and a preacher of the gospel like Paul. Only the grace of God can take people like you and I and make us acceptable to God and usable in his hands. Only the grace of God sets us free. Be free. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we praise you for these wonderful truths. We clap and rejoice for who you are and what you've done. Jesus, we give you glory. Jesus, we give you praise. Thank you for this I will covenant. Thank you that we don't have to and we've been set free and that you did it, Jesus, that it is finished. Lord, we ask together that nobody in this place would miss out on this awesome covenant of grace that if there's anybody here that's never repented of their sins, that they would repent today, Lord. They come to you and confess that they are so wrong and you are so right and that they would believe by faith that you died on the cross in their place for their sins and rose from the dead to give them new life. Lord, as people call upon you today for salvation and they repent, would you flood them with your grace? Would you wash them white as snow? Would that removal of guilt and shame be tangible and wonderful to them? And would you transform lives? For those of us that are already in this covenant, Lord, help us to walk by grace. Teach us to stand in this grace. Give us a greater understanding of what it means to live by grace. Thank you for freeing us from the performance. Thank you, Jesus, for performing perfectly and dying at the right time and raising from the dead to conquer sin, death, and the devil that we might live. Thank you for abundant life. Holy Spirit, teach us about it. Teach us about grace abounding in our lives. Teach us about freedom. It was for freedom that you set us free, Jesus. Teach us to stand firm and to not be subject to a yoke of slavery. If you guys need help today, the prayer team is here. Communion is here to come and remember the inauguration of this new covenant the blood by which we are washed. Let's press into Jesus because we can, we have access.